Good morning. It's good to see you here today. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, whether you're in this room now or if you're following us online, it's good to have you here. It's good for us to be together. And I, I want to echo what David said. Man, if you're in college and you're here, I think you're like 30% of the audience right now. I'm seeing college students everywhere. So that's awesome. We're, it's good to have you. We're in this series called Origin, and it's about kind of the, the, the Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And I encouraged you last week as we began this series to think about reading those 11 chapters. You know, this is the first of the year. Maybe it's a good time for you to get back into your Bible. Let's start at the beginning. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in Genesis 1 through 11. Some of it's kind of wild, and some of it's just a list of who begat who. But I want you to hang with me and try to read the whole thing uh, sometime this week. As I was preparing for my sermon, there's a secret that some of us preachers don't want to tell you. There is this 1-800 number that you can call to get help for your sermon. Only preachers know this. Nobody else knows this. I'm letting you in on a little secret. And so I started this week thinking about Genesis 2 and 3 about, okay, let's call the 1-800 number. But I kept dialing the wrong number. I kept misdialing. It was the weirdest thing. At first I called and it was, it was John Milton, not the 1-800 number, and he was telling me that the snake is the devil which isn't in the text. So I tried again, and I misdialed again. And, and it was this time it was John Calvin, and he was telling me that this is why women are inferior. It's because Eve ate the apple first. And I thought, well, that's not right. And so I tried again, and this time I dialed, and it was my cousin. And he was trying to tell me that this is about Adam and Eve, not Adam. And, and then I just hung up. And then I tried one more time, and I, this time I got Augustine or, or Augustine. St. Augustine, and, and he wanted to talk about original sin. And so, let's talk about that for a minute. There are three words in Hebrew that are, can be translated as sin. But I think it's interesting in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, none of them are used here. And then Augustine went on to tell me about original sin, and that's a term that's loaded with rape. And so I want to kind of give you different ways to think about that. One is that it's tough to think that, you know, babies are born with original sin. It's hard to imagine that because they're, they're so small and they're so pure and they're so wonderful. Now, it's not hard to imagine toddlers as the epitome of original sin, but not babies, a toddler that will look you in the eye with his bowl of cereal. And you say, don't do that. And then he dumps it, never breaking eye contact. It's not hard. Maybe original sin is this thing. Maybe it's like a genetic cancer. It's something that you inherit, like the, the, the BRCA2 gene. Instead of just a preponderance of likelihood, it is inevitable. It's this thing that's going to kill you and it's going to ruin your life. Or maybe we understand original sin is universally true because it's individually true. That there's no one that has a life that hasn't experienced that, that marred sense of self from the very beginning. My point with all of these missed phone calls is that there are very few texts that carry more bags and dependencies and amendments as Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, some of those come from the New Testament. Some of that is, is Paul's work and the work of other New Testament writers to help us understand what Jesus does in the world. 
But a lot of that has nothing to do with Scripture. It's just things that we're carrying with us because of cultural stories or understandings or books that we've read. And, and I think sometimes what happens is that our hands are so full of all this baggage that we don't have any space to open them and to hold what the text wants to offer us today. And so, like last week, at the end of this sermon, I've asked David Knipe to come up and offer a uh, a different reading. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of translation. And what I hope it does is that we as a church can experience together, that it gives us new, a new hearing into a story and to pages that you've heard so many times. And maybe that allows the power of God to enter into our hearts again. But before we get into this text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful We're grateful for this gathering. We're grateful for this time. But most importantly, we're most grateful for your son. The way that Jesus showed us another path, the way that Jesus demonstrates a life of holiness free from sin. And Father, we we express gratitude uh, for the congregation in Beth Israel in Colleyville. We're thankful uh, that no lives of those uh, churchgoers were lost. Worshippers were lost. And we give thanks for the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and others who rose up to stand against institutional evil and sin that has ravished our nation. And we pray that we have the same courage to stand up against sin as well. Whether it's our lives, in our culture, or in our world. So Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching. That I might speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the church says, amen. Okay, so last week what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, there's two tellings of the origin of the universe in, in, in the Bible. There's Genesis chapter 1, and then there's Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And it's fascinating because whoever wrote Genesis chose to do that. Could have chose, okay, this is the one, we're not using the other, Here's the one. We're not using that one. He, they chose to put the two of them side by side. Could have taken them and just kind of mixed them together, made them one, one big story. Chose to put them side by side, two different stories. Why did they do that? It was a very intentional choice. In the first story, what we see is, is God is creating the universe. And the reason that God is creating the universe is because God needs a temple worthy of God's dwelling. And the only thing that is worthy of God's dwelling is the cosmos. And so God creates the universe and the world and creates space for life and flourishing and diversity. And then finally, it's the last kind of the top of the mountain creates humanity, male and female, in God's image. And then God rests. And don't confuse God resting with God taking a break and lying down to sleep. It's what happens when a president moves into the White House. God rests into that moment, into his temple, and begins to reign. And then we turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, and it's a very different story because it's, it's intimate. It's set in a garden. Now, I think one of the th- pieces of baggage that we carry with us is all of the picture books that we read as children when we think about the Garden of Eden because in some ways we think of it kind of a tropical paradise, but that's really not what it means in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, the most common place where we would find a garden, organized, cultivated uh, place of beauty, is in the backyard of the palace. 
Think less the Amazon forest, think more Versailles. The God is reigning in his palace, and then he goes to his backyard, works with his hands, with his fingers in the dirt, and creates Adam. And Adam's job is to be God's gardener, to tend and take care of the plants there. And don't try to pull these two stories apart too far, and don't try to mash these two origin stories together too much. They were told back to back for a reason. And I believe that's because the author wove them together with a thread. And the thread is God's grace and care for creation, both on the majestic cosmic scale and God taking the tender time to form a human being. Now, Eve is formed too. That's from Adam's rib, but a better translation there might be Adam's side. Think of it like the wing of a house. Two parts pulled apart so they can enjoy each other. And it's because our God is very relational in identity. God's very being is triune, is relational in nature. And God creates what they call in Genesis chapter 2 a help meet. Now, there's two ways to understand that. One might be the way that you might understand me when I was helping my father do plumbing when I was a kid, which was my job. What I realize now as a parent is, one, I'm going to give you something so you don't break something else. In the meantime, please hold this light and point it here, no, here, no, here. My, my dad was doing the plumbing, but I was helping. That's not exactly what this word means in the context of the Old Testament. Because this isn't the only time that help meet appears in the Old Testament. In fact, it appears about 20 times in the Old Testament. And this is fascinating. I don't know if you know this, but the most common subject of the word help meet is God. That God is the one that rescues Israel. In fact, it shows up more often than not in some sort of adversarial context where Israel is at war and needs saved, and God comes as help meet to rescue them. Adam and Eve, they're told to do one thing, which is not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the snake comes along and asks them why. You will not die, the snake said. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the snake leaves the couple alone to make up their own minds. And it didn't take long before they ate the fruit. And the snake was right, sort of. They didn't die immediately as God had said. But in that moment was the end of their life as they knew it. In one afternoon, they lost everything, their innocence, their paradise, their intimacy with God and each other. All it took was one stupid, willful decision, and there was no going back. From that moment they left the garden, life was hard and life was painful. And this story is true because it's true in our lives, too. You can probably remember the loss of your own innocence when you saw the money in your mother's purse and you took it only to turn around and see her standing in the door. Innocence in a relationship is a beautiful and fragile thing. Do you remember the first time that you had a fight after you were married? I mean a real fight, not just when you're arguing about who was right or arguing trying to understand the other's position or even like trying to win. It just turned into how much you could hurt the other person. And then the innocence is gone. I remember the first time I betrayed a friend. I said something behind their back. I told a secret that was embarrassing and damaging about them. 
And there was nothing I could do after that point. There was no damage control. There was no quick fix. All that was left was to see the hurt in their eyes and realize the relationship would never be the same. There would always be a time before that moment and a time after. And in the middle was a flaming sword guarding the way back. Every sin can be traced back to either an act of fear or an act of pride. And one of the things you're going to hear over and over as we travel through this origin story together is that sin is not the breaking of a rule. Sin is the breaking of a relationship. The serpent's twisted honesty preys on human pride, the desire to have a relationship with God on our own terms. Because with wisdom like God's, we would be able to approach God with our own agenda, with bargaining rights and all those other things. Or it's based in fear that fundamentally Adam and Eve do not trust that the place and position that God has placed them is in their best interest. And so maybe they should try to seek the means to find their own way. Can God really not see them? Does God know what they've done? God takes a tremendous risk in creating humanity because of the very worst thing you can possibly imagine is about to come true. Humanity's let him down. Sin ruptures relationships. Internally, it causes shame. It ruptures relationships between one another, between self and God. And you never can really get it back. And there's a million ways that you experience this in your own life. I, I, I experienced it just the other day. I was at a, at a restaurant, and the, the waitress came by, and I asked for an iced tea, and everybody else got drinks, and then came back, and they forgot the iced tea. And so I said, hey, iced tea. And she said, sweet, can I take your orders? And then came back and said, the orders will be just a minute. And I said, yeah, but I really love that iced tea. And she said, just a second. And then the food comes, still no iced tea. And then that like next visit that comes afterwards where, um, you know, she says like, how is everything? It tastes great. And at this point, my, fr- my pride in the mistreatment that I have had experienced and my fear that somehow I'm not worthy rupture the relationship. And I give a woman that's just trying to do the best she can what for. And as soon as those words come out of my mouth, there's no way back. A a big tip at the end, an apology. The work of sin has ruptured it. And it's difficult to speak of sin in our culture. Our culture does not want to admit fault or blame. We will do anything other than confess our sins or apologize. We will have a hundred different ways to make something sound like an apology that's not really that. I'm sorry you feel that way. Part of that is because I think our culture struggles the most with pride and fear. Those two things drive us. And so instead, we want to push us into kind of two, two, two metaphors, uh, the medical and the legal. When, when sickness is substituted for sin, then illness becomes the primary metaphor for human failings. And we receive diagnosis instead of judgment and treatment instead of punishment. And if our behavior can be tracked to a chemical imbalance or biological urge or childhood trauma, it's difficult for us to call it our fault. And there's some measure of truth in all of that. The other metaphor that we work with is legal. We've seen enough cop shows, we've watched Law and Order enough times to know how this plays out, that people's sins are discovered and they're given a trial 
And more often than not, they're sent to prison for punishment under the guise of rehabilitation. And I want us to hold this very lightly as we talk about sin together because there's this incredible temptation to talk about the sins that are the furthest from my reality. It's the farthest away from us, and that's that's the sin we're going to dwell in because that's way more comfortable than to talk about my own stuff. But, and what I mean by that is it's easy for someone who has a well-paying job to get them theft and ignore greed. The problem with the medical metaphor is that we're not completely at the mercy of our urges. And we've been given a tremendous opportunity to choose. The problem with the legal metaphor is that sin's not just a set of behaviors that should be avoided. If that were true, then Jesus should have been so much easier on the Pharisees. Sin is not the violation of laws, but the violation of relationships. And so punishment is not the ultimate goal. God's goal in this world is not to pour out wrath on you or Adam or Eve or anyone else because they've made a mistake. God's goal is the restoration of relationships. And the problem with both of these metaphors, the medical and the legal, is that we're not completely no fault or full fault. We live in a web of connected relationships that influence us and shape us. But we can also influence and shape the world around us. God is fundamentally relational. And that means that God is going to pursue you despite your wanderings because of his desire to have relationship with you. God will never stop seeking to restore that relationship. God will never stop looking for you and searching for you. God sent his son to find you. Sends his spirit to guide you. And when God sees you, God runs. God gave Adam and Eve clothes to cover themselves. It was an act of of grace. And he has given you his son to cover you as well. So what I want to invite us into now is, is a new hearing of an old text. A story that you've heard maybe since childhood. But let's, let's hear it with fresh ears, and let's experience it again. Have you ever said to yourself, I wonder, I wonder how people began? Well, when God was creating the earth, God put his hands in the dirt of the ground and formed something new, a man, and then blew into his lungs living breath. And the man became a new living being, made from earth, filled with spirit. And then God put the one he had made into a special garden, full of plants, beautiful plants, tasty plants, And in the middle of the garden, two special trees. The tree that gives life and the tree that gives the knowledge of good and evil. God put man in the garden to take care of it. God wanted the man to be a steward and a farmer, but but also just to enjoy it. And the Lord God told man, any fruit from 
any tree in the garden will feed you, except one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, it will feed you death. And then God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a companion. And so God brought every animal and every bird to man and man named each of them, but none of them was quite right to be that perfect companion. So one day God put man to bed and took some of the man's body while he slept and formed woman out of the man's body. And then God took the two and brought them together and man burst into song. At last, one thing that is from me and created for me, from my bone and my body, we will call her woman. And this is why some people look and search for another to spend their lives with. Now the man and his wife were together, and you need to know, they were as naked as newborn puppies, like little children. They could see, they could see each other's hearts and minds and spirits, just like their naked bodies. But they didn't desire to hide from each other. It was true intimacy. And even though they knew and were known so deeply, they were not ashamed. Now, of all the animals that God had made, the serpent was the most clever of all. And one day, he spoke to the woman. I have heard that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden. Surely that's not right, is it? The woman said to the serpent, No, we can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it, don't even touch it, or you'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, Psh, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, everything. What's good, what's evil, all of it. And the woman saw that the tree looked good. And she realized what she would get out of it. She would know everything. And so, she took the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate too. And immediately, the two of them did know something. They saw that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. And when they heard God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from the one who had made them. And God called out to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I, well, because I was naked. 
And I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? Why would you do that? The man said, the woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree. And, well, yes, I ate it. God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? It was the serpent, she said. The serpent tricked me and, and I ate. God said to the serpent, because you did this, a curse will be put on you. You will be cursed more than any animal, tame or wild. This is how it will be. You will crawl on your stomach and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will make you and the woman enemies to each other. Your children and her children will be enemies. Her child will crush your head and you will bite his heel. He said to the woman, this is how it will be. I will cause you to have a lot of pain when you are pregnant. When you give birth to your babies, it will be in pain. And, and you'll want to please your husband, but he will rule over you. He told the man, because you listened to what your wife said and because you ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, this is how it will be. The very ground will be your enemy, just like the serpent. Getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies will be for your wife. Your work will be pain all your life long. And the ground will fight back, sprouting thorns and weeds. And you're going to have to get your food the hard way, uh, planting and tilling and harvesting and sweating in the fields from dawn till dusk until one day the ground will finally win and you will return to it dead and buried. You started out as dirt and you'll end up dirt. And the man, known as Adam, named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. But God... God provided leather clothing for Adam and his wife. After all that, God provided clothes for them. And God said, the man has become like one of us, capable of knowing everything, ranging from good to evil. What if now he should reach out and take fruit from the tree that gives life and eat and live forever in that state? We can't let this happen. And so God forced them out of the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they'd been made. He forced them out of the garden and he stationed angels and a sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree that gives life. Thank you, David. Uh, may you stand for our benediction. 
In just a moment, our prayer team is going to come forward, and they'll be ready for you to receive you. If you have something you need to pray about today or you want somebody to talk to, whether it's just a a short conversation, a prayer, or a cup of coffee this week, they're happy uh, to be available with you, our prayer team and our elders. This week, I want to challenge you. Last week, I challenged you to go out and see creation and experience the wonder of God. This week, experience God's never-ending, never-giving-up, never-stopping love. God gave grace to Adam and Eve with clothes, with, kind of tragically, with exile. God gives grace through us, through Christ. Find the place where God gives grace to you this week. So may you experience the joy of Christ. May you experience God's never-ending love. Go in peace.